I'm Rachel Grimm, and welcome to the podcast with all your mind. I'm here to help us understand the Bible with cultural and historical context, linguistic info, and other cool stuff. Enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Rachel, and this is with all your mind. And we're back again for another textual criticism episode. I hope you enjoyed the last one. I hope you're looking forward to this one. I honestly wasn't quite sure if I would be enjoying these or not because it was a lot of work to put the material together. It feels really complicated and dense and it was it was just hard to distill it down to easily manageable chunks, but I think I did it. Uh, you can be the judge though. But yeah, I'm really enjoying it because it's just it's just interesting to me. I'm a nerd, so it's interesting to me. Uh, I was actually going to avoid it for a week, uh, postpone it for another day to record this one. Um, but then I remembered, oh, I have other stuff to do, which I remembered, oh, maybe I should tell you guys what I'm doing. So about a little over a year ago, I bought some language courses online to do, and they gave me three years to do these five language courses. And I think I mentioned them a long time ago, probably at the very start of the podcast in season one. But I, I realized that if I've, I'm telling you guys that I know Hebrew and Greek, I should brush up and make sure that I still know Hebrew and Greek because I last studied a formal Greek course. Oh, man. It was probably like 2012. So that's it's 2023. So 11 years ago, and I thought, uh, yeah, I should, I should do it again. So I bought these five, it was a package deal, five online language courses, and it was two Greek, pointy Greek classes, two biblical Hebrew, and one Aramaic. So a little status update, I finished the Greek ones, two Greek ones are done, and then just a few weeks ago, I finished um, the first Hebrew one. So next week, I have to start on Biblical Hebrew 2, and then when that's done, I'm not sure when I'm going to get done with that. They typically take me like four or five months to get through, depending on how consistent I stay, and then I'll do the Aramaic one. So hopefully I'll get all five of them done within two or two and a half years. I have three years to do them, and then I think I just lose my access to them. But yeah, so you know, <laughs> when I say I know Hebrew and Greek, I'm checking myself to make sure that I actually do and staying current with these things because even between 2012 and 2023, things have changed in our understanding of Koine Greek. When I did this course, and it was an updated course, they had some different information about a grammatical feature. And, it, you know, if I told you, you'd be like, what? I don't care. But... They're just fine-tuning their understanding based on more research and finding more documents. Archaeological digs are like, hey, I just read in the news, I think it was two days ago, that they just found a huge papyrus scroll in Egypt, and it is just like a huge scroll, and it's complete, and it hasn't like fallen apart or anything, and it's not uh, a biblical text. It was, I think, something about... Um, like a liturgy, an Egyptian liturgy for funerals for somebody and something to do with the afterlife. That's as much as I read about the article. But they're still finding stuff. So you're still going to have to, you know, be open-minded 
when they find a document and they use some grammatical feature a slightly different way, they're like, oh, we didn't know you could do that before. So things still change. Our understanding still changes. So it's cool to see how that works out. The ancient languages are not quite as dead as what we thought, you know. Uh, at least our understanding of them can change. All right, so one more reminder. Uh, I'm going to do that Q&A episode coming up. So if you have questions, random things that you want to know, I don't even mind if you ask me personal stuff. I don't have to answer. Um, but send them in. My email is always in the show notes. It is with all your mind podcast at gmail.com. Okay, so let's get into this textual criticism stuff. This one is a fun one, okay? In the last episode, we talked about just general ideas and descriptions about textual criticism. What is it? Who uses it? How is it done? What effect does it have? What it involves? Today, we're going to do a case study on a particular topic that came up in the last five years uh, that a friend told me about. Uh, And it reminded me of other controversies about the Bible, Christianity, and Jesus that have come up in the last and I don't know about this, but maybe 20 years or so. Let's see if you've encountered any of these. Does anybody remember the Gnostic Gospels? Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, Gnostic Gospels. There was the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Jesus' wife. And I think there was the Gospel of Mary. There was, there's a whole bunch of them. I don't know all of them. Ryan is much better at these random things than I am. Uh, If you want to know more about them, ask Ryan, not me. Uh, It's really easy to find the Gospel of Thomas online, and you'll immediately see that it's weird. It was a Gnostic document, meaning it wasn't truly Christian. It was a philosophy that shared some beliefs with Christianity, but Paul and John, the disciple, clearly taught against it in their New Testament writings. But the Gospel of Thomas which was written sometime between 60 and 250 AD, so really early, is weird. (laughs) It's just weird. It talks about how only men are allowed into heaven. Uh, And I think part of it talks about, oh, Mary Magdalene, she's great. We should allow her in. And Jesus says, okay, I'll turn her into a man so that she can go into heaven. So it's, it's just, it's weird. And then here's this quote that Jesus says, according to the Gospel of Thomas, Lucky is the lion that the human will eat, so that the lion becomes human. And foul is the human that the lion will eat, and the lion still will become human. Uh, what? (laughs) So, these Gnostic Gospels often have parables and narrative from the Gospels that are in the Bible, from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, so that it's familiar content, but then it's just all different and weird. They're all at least a little bit different from how they are presented in the Bible, in the biblical Gospels. But here's the thing. Finding the Gospel of John didn't happen until 1945. So it caused a big stir because it's like, oh, what's going on here? And the Gospel of Jesus' wife was publicized in 2012. So with finding these new Gospels, if we want to call them that, was very disorienting for people because it raised very scary questions like, do we maybe not have the whole Bible? Are we missing stuff? Are we actually following a very weird religion? 
and the weirder parts just got literally buried in the sand in Egypt. So what you may not know is that the Gospel of Thomas was found with a whole bunch of other Gnostic documents, and no major branch of Christianity accepts them as canon. No major Christianity group says, yeah, okay, this is a part of the Bible. And the early church fathers were outspoken against Gnosticism and any writings from Gnostics. So this was a very well-known topic and issue, and it was spoken against. I think one of the councils, one of the early councils was formed just to talk about Gnosticism and kind of create creeds and define Christianity so that it specifically excluded Gnosticism. I won't get into what all Gnosticism is, but it's, it's not Christian. So it was clearly not accepted in the 100s and 200s AD, and it isn't now. That's consistent. So anyone that tries to make it seem like Gnostic Gospels or any Gnostic texts should be considered Christian is just misrepresenting or straight up trying to deceive you about the situation. So don't worry about those. (laughs) But then there's this Gospel of Jesus' wife, which was presented, (laughs) I'll say that very specifically, publicized in 2012, and it turns out that it's most likely a forgery. It was a modern forgery written on medieval papyrus. So somebody got their hands on medieval papyrus and wrote this Gospel of Jesus' Wife. And this Gospel of Jesus' Wife makes it sound like Jesus is married, and I think it was to Mary Magdalene. And I remember this being in the news and it being a big deal, like, oh no, was Jesus actually married? And I thought, does that really change anything for me? And I was kind of like, whatever, I really don't care because it, I don't care if Jesus was married. If they didn't mention that in the Gospels, I don't, I don't really care. But it doesn't matter either way. It was a forgery. And that is the job of a textual critic to find out what's even real. So it's a good thing we have textual critics around to find out what's real, what's a forgery, what's the real deal. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about a case study that I kind of got personally involved in just because I researched it. That's my, (laughs) the extent of my uh, involvement. A friend sent me an article and said, hey, what do you think of this? She was really excited about it, but she wanted to get some facts before she got more excited about it, which I appreciated um, because when we find kind of exciting things, exciting stories, we can kind of cling to them. We can kind of force them to be true in our brain because of our own motives. So I appreciated that she wanted to kind of fact check this. So one of the things that kind of came up through all of this was that I realized that we need to make sure that we're not twisting the Bible to make us feel empowered, fulfilled, or just plain excited about something new. So it's an important part of textual criticism to make sure you're not using it as a weapon or as self-fulfillment. Okay, so here's the story. My husband and I, with our two boys, were going on an hour-long drive uh, for a family day. We were going to a place called Penn's Cave. And if you're from central Pennsylvania, you probably know what Penn's Cave is. It's out in the middle of nowhere in Amish country, Mennonite country. And it's this underground cave. It's not in a hillside. It's under the ground. And it's filled with water. So it's this subterranean lake that's also a cave. 
and it was discovered, I think, in the 1890s or somewhere around there, and then has been nearly continuously used as a tourist site since then, and you can just ride these really long skinny boats through the cave and pop out on the other side, and they're kind of a safari park that they have with animals. It's really random, yep, <laughs> um, but that's central Pennsylvania for you. So we were heading out there, and a high school friend uh, texted me an article and said, what do you think? So with my husband driving and my kids watching YouTube videos of Mario Kart, I researched whenever I had reception because we were driving through state uh, forests and stuff. There was not much reception in some parts. So this is a, a pretty long story. I had to go through maybe three or four different articles before I felt like I had the whole story. So I have to skip over some parts of how things were presented in one way, the original article, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to link all this stuff in the show notes. So if you want to read all of these articles for yourself, feel free, but I'm going to kind of summarize a bit. But the story was a woman was working on a master's degree in New Testament studies and she was looking at one of the earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, and it was the Gospel of John on a papyrus, and it's called Papyrus 66. And that should tell you something about how many papyruses we have. Papyri? Papyri. 66, and I think the last number is 150. There's a lot, and these are all New Testament manuscripts. And some of them are only one gospel or one book of the New Testament. Some of them have more than one book, but they're all from the New Testament. Uh, so this particular papyrus, Papyrus 66, was discovered in, with other papyri in 1952 in Egypt. And it was only made available online to look at, as opposed to traveling to, I think it's Switzerland, where this is housed in the last 20 years or so. So it's only been online in the last 20 years. So now, just recently, you know, in the context of history, it's only recently that you could independently do research on these papyri without having to travel to Europe to do it. And these papyri, papyri, I'm going to get it wrong and say papyrus as I know it. Papyri, these papyri are not all in the same location. This one is in Switzerland, uh, but it said one page of it is in Germany. <laughs> so you have to be pretty rich, pretty independent, not have little kids at home to be able to travel around to look at these before they became online and publicly viewable. So now we can look at the text. There's photocopies of each page of the text. And this is another thing that I'm going to have a link in my show notes so that you can actually look at the specific page of the document that we're going to talk about. You can see the handwriting. You can see what a papyrus, what an ancient manuscript looks like. And this one is about from 200 AD. And you can see that there were corrections made on the documents. And if you read Greek, you can see they used abbreviations and wow, these things are hard, hard to read. I mentioned this in the last episode, and it was because of the research I did for this episode that I looked at a lot of pages <laughs> of manuscripts to find the particular one that I wanted. And it was actually Ryan that found it. He's a good researcher, man. But yeah, it's really hard to read these. The ink is faded. You can still read it, but if you didn't, if you're not so good at Greek, you would really struggle. 
It's in uh, a particular script that is not the same as modern Greek script. It's a little bit different. Um, they do not have any spaces between words. They do not have any spaces between sentences. They don't have any punctuation. Um, they break up words between lines so that you have to know what the word was supposed to be to be able to reconstruct it. <laughs> it is hard. It is very hard to read these manuscripts, okay? So this lady who was doing this research, getting her master's in New Testament studies, saw that a scribe had made a correction to a word. And the particular verse she was looking at is John 11.1. 1. And this is where we're opening the scene where Lazarus gets sick and dies. And Jesus raises him from the dead. That's the beginning of the story. It starts in John 11. Now verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. I'm going to read it again because this is where everything begins for this whole story. Verse 1 says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. So this lady doing the research saw that where we have Martha, it had Mary, and then the scribe corrected it to Martha. Okay? So he wrote Mary and Mary, and then he corrected it to Mary and Martha. And it, that's pretty normal practice to correct mistakes like that, to just write it above, scratch it out, but you can still tell that they changed something. So what's special about this? Well, the lady who was looking at that document noticed lots of mistakes in regards to Mary and Martha and mixing up those names and some pronouns like he and she. And she did well. She noticed a mistake, that mistake in verse one, that the scribe corrected and wrote above it, Martha, not Mary. So she was the first one to ever notice this mistake, okay? That's the big deal, is that nobody else had ever noticed this mistake before. And I'm sure there were people that had gone through this manuscript before. I know, I, no, I know that people went through this and found mistakes and changes and variations before. Textual variants, that's what we call them. If it's a little bit different from other texts, but remember what I said about these documents. They're very hard to read. So missing something, while it's not common, is it can happen. Especially since these things were only online, able to be seen by the general public for less than 20 years. And this lady was looking at it in 2019, so minus four years. So no more than, say, 15 years, okay? But so far... All of this is not really newsworthy, right? This is just what you call a textual variant. It means a spot where a manuscript doesn't agree with another manuscript. Either because, like we talked about in the last episode, because a word was misspelled, or a letter was out of place, or two words got put together as one word, or one word split into two words, like our example with applesauce, or a word switched around. Um, all the things that we talked about. So what happens with this, if somebody finds, if a researcher finds a mistake or a textual variant of any kind, that means, oh, this is a little bit different. It's one letter different from this other manuscript. There is what, <laughs> what I'm going to call a royal catalog of manuscript variations. There is a catalog 
and it is called a critical apparatus, <laughs> but I'll call it a catalog just to help us out a bit. There is a massive, super complicated catalog that lists every single document, every single manuscript, every single piece of information we have about the Bible in every single place where manuscripts do not agree with each other. So say for John 11.1, 1, the verse that we were just talking about, I, I own a copy of this, what you call, critical apparatus that lists all of the textual variants that exist for every book of the Bible with every manuscript that we've ever found of a biblical book, okay? You can, you can, you can buy one if you want. Um, it comes alongside a certain Greek um, Bible. And so I opened this up on Logos, Logos Bible software. And for John 11.1, 1, it tells me that there are two textual variants across the board from every single manuscript that we know of for John 11.1. 1. There is Papyrus 6 has something slightly different for one word and uh, Alexandrinus and one other document have another difference and it's just a different word that is in a different oh, I'm not going to get into the grammar so there's two words <laughs> that have slightly different things about them across the board in every single manuscript that exists in the world there's three documents that don't have the verse exactly the same okay and then I can look I can look for verse two there's like 40 documents that have something slightly different in there. Um, for verse 3, there are, there's just one. There's just one in verse 3, that one document that has an outlier, something slightly different. And guess what? It's Papyrus 66. And I kept on looking. And I was like, oh, Papyrus 66 has a lot of little changes and a lot of textual variants in there. Papyrus 66 is a little bit weird. So anyway... There is this thing called the critical apparatus that tells you just the normal person can look at it and see, oh, that manuscript has that word, but this manuscript has this word, and so on and so on. I wanted to know, this critical apparatus edition that I have is from 2012. It was before this lady found this textual variant. And I wanted to know if this is 2012 and they're going to put out a new edition in next year, I think, in 2024. And I wanted to know, are they going to include this new textual variant? Are they going to say, hey, we found another variant? So I wanted to know, would this textual variant make it into this royal catalog of textual variants? Would they say, oh yeah, we see that now. That is a correction that was made. And we don't see that in other manuscripts. We don't see Mary and Mary. We see Mary and Martha everywhere else. We've never seen that one. That's a textual variant. So I didn't want to wait <laughs> until 2024 because this episode was going to be published in 2023. And I wanted to know for you guys, what are they doing with this? Because this lady that was doing this research went before the committee that writes this royal catalog, the critical apparatus, and she made her case for it to say, hey, I found it here and making sure that she wasn't looking at a forgery or something different, making sure, you know, just making sure that it was a real thing and that she hadn't been mistaken somehow. So I wanted to know. 
So I went ahead and emailed some people that work with this committee, this committee of editors, and asked, hey, can I find out if this is going to be included? Now, I, I emailed back and forth with this guy, and I accidentally asked for the wrong verse because this lady actually worked on a lot of different verses in John 11. But it was really interesting to see the information that he gave me because he gave me a, an Excel spreadsheet for John eleven twenty one, And this is a, a verse that also includes Mary and Martha, right? So it, that's where she saw another textual variant. And the document he sent me had every single manuscript known to man for John eleven twenty one, and how each individual manuscript phrases that verse. And you could see where they capitalized, where they didn't capitalize, where they abbreviated, and where they didn't abbreviate. And this document had 200 <laughs> different entries, 200 different manuscripts known to man for John eleven twenty one. And guess what? <laughs> it was boring to look at <laughs> because of how similar everything was. It was interesting to see which things were abbreviated. Uh, there, it was a well-known um, practice to abbreviate the names of God, the name of Jesus, the title Christ, um, and different things like that. Even crucify and the cross were words that were commonly abbreviated. So it was interesting to see which documents, which manuscripts abbreviated things, and which ones said things slightly differently. But by and large, like 180 out of 200 of these documents were like virtually identical. And you could also see where words were sometimes switched around, you know, just how we might say in English, I like dogs and cats, but then you could see somewhere else, I like cats and dogs. And it's no change in meaning. It's just, that's what you would call a textual variant if that were done for the Bible. So you could see where textual variants weren't terribly uncommon. They were just really, really unimportant ones. Not at all weird to have it documented and noted. It goes through a process. So when you find a textual variant, it just goes through a process. It's vetted to make sure it's not a fake or a forgery. And if it's all legit, it goes into this catalog, the critical apparatus. This lady made her case in front of the catalog's editors in 2019 so what would happen is if they accept it as real and not noticed before is that it would go into this catalog, into the critical apparatus. And even if this textual variant were included in this giant catalog, it would not change our Bibles. All right. Here's the thing. It would not change our Bibles because it's a textual variant. It means it's one spot where something is different. An outlier a one-time mistake in one manuscript. And one of the basic rules of textual criticism is that you don't look at quality, you look at quantity. So that means if 100 manuscripts say that Jesus wept and one says that Jesus laughed, you take the 100 that say that Jesus wept, even if that one time that says Jesus laughed is the most respected of all the manuscripts, okay? So it doesn't matter if one manuscript says one thing. We take the majority. We take the quantity, not the quality. That's a basic rule of texture criticism. 
So these mistakes about Mary and Mary instead of Mary and Martha, that's one of nearly 200 different manuscripts. Now this guy that I asked, will this be included in the critical apparatus that's going to be updated and sent out again next year? He didn't give me an answer on that because I asked about the wrong verse and um, he's a really busy guy and I did not want to email again and ask him to check on a different verse. Um, but what I did was I brought up this Papyrus 66 in Logos in my Bible software on my computer and it has a note in John 11.1. 1, it says, hey, this was changed. There was an edit right here. It used to be Mary, and then a scribe scratched it out and put Martha, okay? So the editors of the papyrus, the digital editors of the papyrus itself, which is housed in Switzerland, doesn't have anything to do with the critical apparatus. That's a different organization. They have already recognized it and have already published about it to say, yeah, there's a textual variant there, okay? So, so far, <laughs> all of this is pretty normal, above board, and nothing to get excited about. It might be cool if you're a super Bible nerd or into ancient documents, but other than that, it's not really news. Here's what happened, though. This is why we're talking about this at all, is that the lady that found this textual variant was doing research on Mary Magdalene. And after looking at this textual variant and others in Papyrus 66, she was presenting an argument that there really was no Martha ever. Like, the person didn't exist. And that there was only a Mary. And Mary, Lazarus' brother, is also Mary Magdalene. Her argument was that most of the Marys, not Mary, Jesus' mother, but other, the other Marys, all the Marys of the New Testament were actually one person. This is her argument. And scribes went ahead and edited these documents because they didn't want Mary to be as big of a deal. They kind of wanted to tone her personality down, tone down her presence in the Bible. And that, that is what that lady was saying. That was her argument. She was not just saying that there was a textual variant and, hey, oops, he made a mistake. It was Mary and Mary and then he corrected it to Mary and Martha, she was saying, oh, there's a textual variant, and I see a connection between this textual variant and five other textual variants, and this is the theory. This is why these things are happening. And she was making a very big claim. She was claiming that the scribes had an agenda, that they were being misogynistic, or were being threatened by Mary Magdalene, having too big of a role in the Bible, or something along those lines. So this lady, she had lots of other facts. Um, I <laughs> combed through all of it, and yeah, she had a lot. She wasn't being a irresponsible researcher. She had done a lot of research. So it wasn't just on the basis of those textual variants alone, but on the basis of all of this, she was making a theory. The problem is that her theory was based on a lot of assumptions, not least of which is that the scribes were deliberately changing the text in order to deceive us. That's the big deal. That's the big claim that she was making because we have no evidence of anybody ever doing that 
anywhere else in the Bible. And that's why I'm okay with textual criticism, because it just goes to show how honorable people were with how they were handling all of these manuscripts. So if she was right and said, hey, they changed this to obscure Mary Magdalene, to tone her down, to smudge her out of the biblical story a little bit, that's a very big deal because it would be the first time that we would have quote-unquote evidence of anybody who wrote the Bible or copied the Bible having an agenda and trying to deceive us. So this made big news, as you would imagine, and people started to preach and teach that Mary Magdalene was a bigger figure than what we think she was, and we should give her more credibility and credit, and that she was kind of like a parallel figure to Peter, the disciple Peter. So they would say that Peter was like the rock, Jesus called him the rock, and Mary was the tower. And I won't get into those details about why. But here, here's another thing. Um, I'm okay if Mary Magdalene is a big deal in the Bible. I'm okay with Mary Magdalene being a bigger figure than we realize and her being an honorable and righteous woman that Jesus valued. I don't have a problem with that. What I'm not okay with is assuming that scribes tried to hide those facts. I don't have any reason to believe that. And this is the problem with textual criticism from the conservative evangelical viewpoint. They see textual criticism as an open door for theories and assumptions to be made based on some true facts, but also a lot of speculation. And those theories and assumptions satisfy people's desires to make the Bible into what they want it to be. And I agree that is a danger. It is very dangerous to believe that men, because scribes were men, were deliberately trying to minimize the influence of a woman. When I responded to my friend about this article that she sent me, I told her my immediate gut reaction to it. And then I researched and then I told her my more immediate gut reactions and then my the facts that I was finding. And I told her that my, my gut feeling about the article was that somebody was trying to make a case for women to have more authority. That was my immediate reaction. So how can we divide down? How can we figure out what to do with this information? What do you hold on to and what do you flush down the toilet, basically? Well, we can say that textual criticism is not bad. To see what the ancient manuscripts of the Bible actually say and how they were written and what sorts of problems and difficulties they had is really interesting. I read, (laughs) more nerdiness, I read the introduction and background information for Papyrus 66. I went back and looked at what this foundation that owns this document said about it. And they had a whole bunch of, a whole huge bibliography for people that worked on this and presented information about it. And what they said was, it seems like the scribe that copied down Papyrus 66 was a guy that really got into the narrative. And off the top, just looking at this document, it's full of mistakes. It's so full of mistakes. And you might say, oh, this guy just wasn't even paying attention. But then they say, actually, he was paying attention a little bit too much. And what he would do is that he would read chunks And then he would write it down. And then he would look back and realize he wasn't writing it down verbatim. He wasn't writing it down word for word. He was accidentally summarizing 
or accidentally just switching words around. And so Papyrus 66 is full. <laughs> it is full of mistakes. Um, so it's just really interesting that textual criticism is the branch of science that's going to show us the kind of psychology behind these scribes. We can see how this guy was thinking based on the mistakes he was making, which is just really weird and interesting that we can look back 1900 years and see what kinds of mistakes the scribe was making. So textual criticism isn't bad. It is a way to understand what's going on in these documents. So it can be really cool. And it can also be really reassuring to see how extremely accurate the Bible is. Over hundreds of manuscripts written and copied over thousands of years without the help of spell check or even whiteout. So the printing press, like we talked about in a previous episode, wasn't used regularly to print Bibles until the 1500s. So that means that for almost... 3,000 years, the Bible was just copied down by hand over and over and over and over again. And yet we can have an Excel spreadsheet that lists 200 documents and it gets boring to look at because they're so similar. It's crazy. Okay. So what we need to be careful of is letting our own desire for authority or control or self-esteem or whatever the thing is for you to let that wrongly interpret the Bible and its various manuscripts for us. We don't need to take the facts surrounding the biblical manuscripts and force them to fit a narrative that pleases our need for security and value. And we also need to be careful that when we read stories in the news or from church about how someone in academia made a theory and it's all because of textual criticism and ancient manuscripts and blah, 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 We need to be careful to not throw the baby out with the bathwater and say textual criticism or academic study is bad. It's not. It can just be used in bad ways. So using those things to satisfy our own desires instead of letting it inform us about the word of God is the bad thing. That's the bad thing. So let's let the bad thing (laughs) be the bad thing. All right. So that's what I have for today. I hope you enjoyed. I I thought this one was so juicy. (laughs) I had a lot of fun with it. So I hope you guys did too. Uh, Just a reminder, I have a ton of things in the show notes. I will link you directly to that um, papyrus. So you can actually look at it online. And all of the articles that I read concerning this lady and her research I will not be able to put that Excel spreadsheet (laughs) anywhere. Um, I wouldn't do that without permission from the guy that gave it to me. Um, But everything else I'll put in the show notes. So lots of stuff in there if you actually want to look at stuff. Okay. All right. You guys have a great day and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.